Since it is December, I have been listening, not necessarily because I have been wanting to, but I have been listening to tons of Christmas music. And there's a wide variety, a lot of different angles with Christmas, right? There's stuff about Jesus, stuff about love, all I want for Christmas is you. There's stuff that's really festive, like jingle bells, right? And this season, I was kind of paying a little bit more attention to some of the words of these songs. And one of them in particular is just weird. <laughs> uh, the 12 Days of Christmas song, if you ever like really sit down to think about what that's talking about, it's just strange. And, and I did a little bit of research on it, more research than anyone should ever do on a song like this. Um, and I guess there might be some like religious significance to each of these things. I don't know. I don't listen to that. On the surface, it's weird. So let's just take day seven, for example. Receiving seven swans a-swimming. So they receive that. This person receives that for the subsequent next five days as well. So if my math is correct, that is 42 swans. What do you do with 42 swans? If I was a person that was receiving these gifts from the person that loved me, I'd probably file a restraining order because this is just absolute, it's so wild. Whenever you really think about also just the sheer number of gifts that are compiling in this person's life. But ironically, I do think that song is a very fitting song for our culture, particularly in regards to what this season has evolved into for so many people. Because Christmas has become a time deeply entrenched by consumerism and comfort. For instance, UPS has hired over 100,000 seasonal delivery people for this month specifically. And that's just one delivery service. I don't know what the rest of them are. And it's not just the sheer volume in which we see this sort of consumerism, but it's even in the ways that we buy gifts now. We don't have to do the elbowing people through Black Friday necessarily anymore, which is probably good for humanity. But we can order anything we want from the convenience of our house, and it will show up in our doorstep sometimes the same day. Just wild stuff. And we don't have to go to a video store to buy It's a Wonderful Life. We can just stream it from the convenience of our living room. I think sometimes we forget the, the luxury and the comfort that we have that we can go to uh, hit the heat up a few degrees and it instantly gets warmer, right? As opposed to back in the day, you'd have to go cut down a tree and then start a fire for warmth. Sometimes I think we forget just the sheer ease of living that we experience and the comfort that we have, myself included. And maybe we seek these kinds of lifestyles because we want to avoid hardship as much as we can. Perhaps it stems from fear of missing out on something that we think we might need or want. Maybe it's because we genuinely believe that deep down, to achieve the good life, we need to have as much comfort as possible. But as C.S. Lewis says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. If you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14 if you want to turn your Bibles there. And we're going to be looking at the letter that was given specifically to the church in Laodicea. And in many ways, I think this letter could be a copy and paste letter to the church in the United States. So let's go ahead and read it. Verse 14. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. 
This is the message from the one who is the amen, which is an allusion to Isaiah 65, the one who is true, uh, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit, or in Greek, literally, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So Christ, in viewing all the things that this church is doing, states that they are neither hot nor cold, but they are like lukewarm water, which is really interesting for this church's context specifically. Because Laodicea, from about five to ten miles north of it, there was an aqueduct that was built that would pump mineral water from a hot spring into the city. Similarly to the southeast, there was an aqueduct built that would bring in cold water into the city. The problem was the distance was so far that by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And Laodicea had this reputation for having water that kind of made you a little bit sick. So this metaphor is fitting for this church in a couple ways. And there's a lot of debate about what hot and cold actually means here. For instance, one interpretation is that Jesus is saying that he would rather us not sit on the fence but choose to either be on fire for God or to be like spiritually dead and cold. I don't think that's what the interpretation of this is. I don't think that's something that's in the heart of God to where he is wanting anybody to be spiritually dead and cut off from him, right? He wants all people to come to know him, as Second Peter talks about. So what I think this is talking about, if we think about the metaphor of lukewarm water, this is more specifically about usefulness, because hot water is useful for bathing. It's useful for cooking. There's some healing properties. Cold water is good for drinking, cooling your body down, right? But at least in the ancient mindset, being lukewarm is useless. Now, for me, I wouldn't use this metaphor because I actually like drinking lukewarm water because I can drink it faster. So that's probably not what I would say. But you get the point. The problem for this church, like the water from their aqueducts, is that they are too far away from their source, to the point Jesus would spew them out of his mouth, which is a term of judgment. Could you imagine hearing Jesus say, you make me so sick, I want to vomit you out of my mouth? He then expands in the next verses what he's talking about. In verse 17, this is Jesus still speaking. He says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want, meaning they have an abundance of wealth and possessions. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor, literally like a beggar, and blind and naked. This is all language saying you think you don't have need, but you are in dire need. And in 18, he says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Then you will have abundance. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And white garments, that's symbolic about purity and holiness. And it's the same clothing that Jesus himself wears in this book. And ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see which that Greek word is a remedy that's specifically for tender eyes. What's interesting in the first century too, there was a school of medicine and there was a famous ophthalmologist from the first century in the church of Laodicea. So there's even some connection with that. 
But what we see here is part of what is making this church lukewarm and useless is their comfort, their material wealth and security in which they think there's really nothing more that we need. But Jesus doesn't sugarcoat any words here, does he? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Wow. You think that you are safe in your comfort and your luxury, but you don't realize exactly how much need you really have. You don't realize how much danger there is in being comfortable. And we may wonder, why on earth would Jesus say all of this harsh stuff? Well, we see his heart in verse 19. He says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Jesus doesn't speak these words to shame, to make us feel lesser about ourselves. He speaks these challenging words because he loves. Because he loves us so deeply. He doesn't treat churches with the same apathy and indifference that we may treat him. He brings correction because he loves us. Jesus is inviting this church that is so in love with their wealth and their comfort to the point of them being indifferent towards Christ and the world. He is beckoning them to wake up, to turn their eyes back to him and buy what he is selling them. And then, and only then, will they be able to have true abundance for their lives. Though this was written almost 2,000 years ago, I think there is so much that we can still relate to. I think in our time, it's even easier to find comfort in our own abundance. I know in a room this size, there's going to be people of all sorts of financial statuses. But thinking about the average person in Williamson County, <clears throat> do we realize how rich we are? Did you know that there are 9 million people a year that die from starvation? 9 million a year that do not have the basic need of life. I also spent some time researching the average worldwide yearly income, and one of the metrics that I found is that the average household globally makes about $2,800 a year. A year. And that's a household. That's not necessarily just an individual. That, that equates to a little under $8 a day. By that standard, I think most of us would be grossly rich. With wealth also comes the temptation to be insulated from the reality of other people, which means it is easier for us to turn a blind eye to the injustice in our world and live very comfort of this church. Francis Chan has this really good illustration that captures what we're talking about today, and I'm going to let him tell it because he can do it better. So if you could go ahead and... Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried. We get a little scared. And this is what Christians do, you know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky, and things get a little unstable, and so we go, okay, that was nuts, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that, let me, uh, let me hold on, and this is your routine, this is what so many people do, they go, you know what, I'm not going to try anything crazy, I'm just going to sit here, and uh, I'm just going to hold on, and uh, this is what you look like, you just go, uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to, um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just, 
I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2% um, and uh, maybe serve, help the nursery because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life and then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this, just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge and you go. <laughs> now, if, uh, could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics you know? And some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes. <laughs> what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live, and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge, and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. I love that clip. Um, it's super convicting. It's, it's hilarious, just that image, right? Uh, but it's super convicting. And that was done in 2006, if you can't tell from the video quality. But it's just as true today. And just to be crystal clear, there is nothing wrong with homeschooling, right? There is nothing wrong with giving to the church and helping in the nursery. We need help in the nursery. But he's trying to illustrate that the life that God is calling us to is more than what we often settle for. Jesus is not calling us to a life of comfort and safety. Francis Chan also has this quote from his book, Crazy Love, that I think really sums up what he just talked about and what we're talking about today. God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. How quick are we to put ourselves in situations like that? It's a lot easier said than done, right? In our time and in many cultures throughout time, we have been slaves to hedonism. And hedonism simply means, it's like a, it's like a belief that the good life is all about our own pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. To be clear, Pleasure in and of itself is not bad, but whenever we elevate it to be the thing that we are striving for, our own comfort is the thing that we are striving for. That might be the American dream, but that is not the Christian dream. The Christian dream is about sacrificial love. Where do we see in the example of Jesus, him accumulating wealth and living comfortably? He was homeless. <laughs> And it instructed his disciples to basically only carry the clothes on their backs to do the work that they were doing, right? Though we live in a culture that idolizes wealth and comfort, that is not the ideal that we are shooting for. We are shooting for love of God and neighbor. And love versus wealth and comfort are often 
directly contradicting each other. We live in a culture with smaller dinner tables, higher privacy fences, and increasing ways to avoid all communal contact for the sake of our own convenience and comfort. The God of our culture has shaped our churches and our church goers into uh, consumers. The God of our culture is making us seek out this thing for church that we're just trying to leave feeling warm and fuzzy. That church is supposed to entertain. I wonder if we were being real with ourselves, what are we really expecting out of church? What does faith in Christ really mean and look like to us? Is what we are wanting out of church and our relationship with Jesus just coming here every Sunday, checking a box, getting an emotional high, saying hello to people that we care about and then otherwise live like every other person around us? What is our mission and our purpose that we are trying to accomplish as a church? Is it about building as big of a brand as we can possibly get, make the best production we can? Functionally, I think a lot of churches have that behind their decision making. And while many churches have incredible production, I fear that they're missing the power of God. And to be clear, being intentional with all the things that we're doing is great. Having tons of people show up at your services is great. That's not a bad thing. But I think sometimes we lose sight of what the church's mission, when I say church, I'm saying global church's mission really is. Jesus was attractive to people, but he was not intentionally trying to be attractional, trying to be the hip and trendy person. But people were flocking to him because he actually had something life-changing to offer. People would go out of their way to see him because he had the power of God. He freed many people from their captivity and he taught like no teacher or rabbi ever before him. But he wasn't focused on generating a brand and getting more people into the crowd. He was focused on doing the Father's will and spent most of his time actually investing in small groups of people And through those small groups of people and through the Holy Spirit, God revolutionized the world. I fear that there are many churches and Christians that may think Jesus is important, that may enjoy a cozy Bible study about him, that loves discovering the fascinating parts of a cultural context, but live as functional atheists, meaning that our lives may not really illustrate that we believe in much of a God. We may find Jesus fascinating, but we don't see him as life itself. I fear that there are so many Christians that have lost sight of the life that Jesus wants to give us and have settled for a cheap imitation, comfortable Christianity. Our goal isn't to enjoy all the goodness of God and salvation just for ourselves and then coast till we die. As the children's song goes, as the scripture we read earlier talks about, hide it under a bush, oh no, we gotta let it shine, right? Because Christianity is not a privatized religion. It is an outward-facing religion because love greatly involves people other than ourselves. Christianity is in the business of healing the world. And we aren't going to help much in that healing process by keeping to ourselves and our comfort And partnering with God, it's going to be hard. 
We're going to face a lot of resistance. Jesus actually says that we can guarantee it if we are following in his ways, that the world is going to hate us because the world hated him. But he says, take heart because he has overcome the world. Jesus knows there's going to be hardship. He joins us in it. He has experienced suffering himself. And he gives us the strength to face whatever it is that we're going to be facing. And it may not just be the fear of hardship and trial that prevents us from wanting to live out our faith a little bit more. It could also just be from the, man, I don't think I'm going to be able to make much of a difference. I don't think there's much that I have to bring. And also, if you just look at the sheer brokenness in this world, how on earth can I possibly make even a tiny little impact? Right? I'm just a drop in the bucket. I don't have anything to bring, which that's a lie. God has gifted you with so many things. God has given you opportunities and relationships that you can have some influence over. There's a story I heard that's really beautiful. There's a young man who's walking along the beach, and he sees thousands of starfish laying across it. And so he starts one by one picking up each starfish and throwing it into the sea. And an older man walks by. He's like, why are you throwing all these starfish into the sea? The younger man responds and says, if I don't, the tide's going away and the sun's about to come out, they're all going to die. And the older man said, well, don't you realize that you're not possibly going to be able to save them all? In fact, you probably won't even be able to save a tenth of them. I bet if you were here all day, you would just make a tiny little impact, if any at all. And the younger man bends down, picks up another starfish, and throws it into the sea. And he says, made a difference to that one. We're not God. We are not the Savior. We can't make the world level change that we need to make. But we can take that first step of obedience to follow Jesus. And then the next one. And then the next one. And then the next one. And though we may not be able to save the world or even a fraction of it, We might be able to make a difference to that one, or that one, or that one. Church, God is offering so much more for our lives than what we have been settling for. God is calling us to be his people here on earth, to let the living water of Christ bubble up in our souls and overflow from our hearts into the world for the sake of the world. God is calling us to turn from comfortable to courageous. Living a courageous life is such a necessary thing because there is so much evil and brokenness in our world. We have limited time in our lives. We have limited opportunities to actually do good, to actually help bring heaven to earth. And I know, and I'm speaking for myself on all of this, this is not me preaching down to you guys, this is to myself as well, that there is so much good that we leave undone because we are slaves to doing what is easy and comfortable. But what if we were a church full of people that were captivated by the beauty and the glory of God? That we lived our lives actually wanting to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. To actually believe that God has the power and the desire to help our neighbors and to save them. No matter if death is staring down the barrel at us, no matter whatever trial 
or anything that we face that we are afraid of, right? What if we were a church that stepped out in courage and said, you know what? I know it's all going to be okay because I know who is with me. I want to challenge each of us today to be praying and asking God, how, how do you want me to live courageously for you? How does God want me to live courageously for him? How might God be able to transform our workplace into our mission field? How might God be able to transform our parenting into creating intentional disciples of Jesus? How might God transform the cashier into a real person that has had real hurt in their life, that is just dying for someone to notice and care about them? Maybe there is a good friend or a coworker or a family member that is just one invite away. Maybe that's a Christmas Eve service. Maybe that's a small group. Maybe that's just getting coffee one-on-one. But one invite away from the gospel latching onto their hearts. And you can help be that bridge. We serve the same God that split the sea. We serve the same God that brought fire down to show all the prophets of Baal what's what. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead. There is no limit to what God can do, even through us. Even though we feel like we are insignificant and don't have much to bring, God can work miracles. The Spirit of God through us can help free the addicts, can help relationships be reconciled, and most importantly, bring salvation to even the most closed off of hearts. The Lord is inviting us to be a courageous church, to say yes to his invitation that leads us away from just defaulting to what is comfortable and to doing what is loving and is leading the world to truth. I want to conclude with how the letter concludes in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Are you kidding me? Did we just read that verse? I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom that. But that is how empowering and loving our God is to lift us up in that way. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Lord, I pray this morning that we be a church that is listening to your invitation. That you are knocking at our door. That you are wanting so much more for our lives. I know that we have been sleeping that our souls have been slaves to doing what is easy, doing what is comfortable. Lord, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you just release that. I pray that you help us to see you in your glory. That then makes everything else pale in comparison. That we are just so locked into what you want and what your heart is for this world that we want nothing more than to walk into that vision that you have. To walk into the mission that you have set before us to go into all nations and make disciples. 
Jesus, I pray that in this church, you convict us, you convict our spirits. Help us to not live for the status quo. Help us not to live just for coming to Sunday and then going home. Lord, Sunday through Monday, all the days, Lord, I pray that you just help us to be on fire for you, to live with courage, and to trust that no matter what lies before us, that you are with us. I want to take a second and just let the Lord speak into your life right now. Think about one relationship. Think about one person. Think about making a rule for yourself about how you want to live more outward. Lord, just speak into our lives. Show us what you want. What do you want for our lives? How can we be a courageous church? And Lord, give us the courage to follow that prompting. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.